two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira. I'm in a squeaky ass chair. <laughs> Here we are. I just want to thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Podcast. This is something I love to do. I love true crime. I love talking about true crime. I love having a group of people that I can share true crime stories with. And I just want to say go check out Facebook Storytime Slayer. That's where I post additional video footage, photos, news clips, articles, things like that pertaining to these stories. Tell your friends, give it a like, and be on the lookout because I'm going to be doing some really cool summer giveaways this year. All right. With that being said, let's get started. Craig Rabinowitz. Okay, this is the kind of guy that everybody ends up fucking hating. You may not know who he is now. But I promise you, you're going to hate him. He's an idiot. Let's do this. April 30th, 1996, Craig Rabinowitz calls 911 to report that he found his wife's lifeless body in the bathtub shortly after midnight. Unsure exactly what happened to his 29-year-old wife, Stephanie, Craig was found upstairs soaking wet trying to retrieve her body from the bathtub when first responders arrived. Despite Craig not being described as a weak man, he was unable to get her out of the fucking tub on his own. Seriously? He's slightly under or right at like six feet, I think. About 210 pounds. Pudgy, but not uselessly pudgy. People were surprised he couldn't retrieve her from the bathtub, actually. Oh, and he has a slightly receding hairline, I think. Okay, so unsure what happened, Craig said that he'd heard a bump that he thought was a shampoo bottle, which routinely fell from the side of the bathtub, and he'd actually been in his room. He was like half watching a hockey game and half reading a newspaper when his wife was in the bathtub. It wasn't until she didn't emerge for like 35 minutes that he went to check on her. By the way, they live in a fairly small home, I think. Oh, I want to quote it at like 1,600 square feet. And the bathroom door, which she bathed in, was across the hall from their bedroom. Both doors were open so that they wouldn't creak and wake baby Haley up. So it's a very short distance from each door. And the bathroom was also fairly small. So they weren't very far away from each other for him not to hear anything. Everyone believed that this was an accident because, well, Craig and Stephanie had been together for 14 years. They met when Stephanie was 16 and Craig was 20. He was a camp counselor at a neighboring camp that Stephanie attended one summer. Stephanie was very academically driven and she ended up going to law school, whereas Craig's father made his money in manufacturing, so Craig aimed for more blue collar than white collar in academics. It wasn't until Stephanie was 23 that the couple got married. Craig worked a series of different jobs, none of them very noteworthy Um, or required much training, but he then came across a great business opportunity. Craig had found somewhere in China that he could buy medical gloves in bulk, and then he would store them, have them brought over to Philadelphia, and store them in a unit where he could sell them for two times the cost. Everyone thought this was a swell idea, and he was going to make hundreds of thousands of dollars off this deal. This made them able to move to a swanky area called um, 
the main line, I believe. So Philadelphia obviously has a pretty high crime rate, but the main line in Philadelphia is a really kind of suburban upscale area. And this is where the couple was able to move finally with her being a lawyer and him running this business. But um, although Stephanie was a lawyer, she was very humble. She was not flashy. And she actually gave up a really nice salary job to only work part-time at 30K a year so that Craig could have a few days a week to focus on his growing business. Now, he'd been making great connections and deals, and so it seemed to be going great. Everyone was pretty optimistic about it. And although families accepted Craig, Stephanie's family. They wish Stephanie had been a little bit more picky and shopped around more. Um, she kind of latched onto Craig and just thought he was perfect. And that was it. Whatever he wanted, she went with. And because of this, they never fought. But the explanation is how can you fight with someone who literally goes with whatever? And Stephanie's mom made some interesting points about Craig. So Craig would do little things like he knew that Stephanie's parents didn't like spicy food. So sometimes for dinner plans with them, Craig would suggest somewhere really spicy, like a spicy Thai food or something like that. And rather than Stephanie protest, she would always go with the flow and say, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. Even if you could tell she didn't really want to, she just did. In a book I read called Everybody's Best Friend, Anne actually said one time Craig told Stephanie's parents, told them that they were going to be moving in so they could save money. She did let the couple move in and they lived there forever. If I'm not mistaken, they lived there for like four years. And he said it was to save money, but it was really because they were in bad debt, which I will get to why later. And despite all this, even though Anne wasn't the greatest fan of Craig, she didn't think he was like a shady or bad person or responsible for Stephanie's accident in the bathtub. Everyone knew this was an accident, maybe a stroke, maybe an aneurysm, maybe she hit her head or had a seizure or whatever. The possibilities were endless. When I say everybody, I'm mainly referencing Stephanie's family and this tight circle of friends that Stephanie and Craig had. They'd been doing stuff with these friends for the last decade. Um, in the friends group, it consisted of three couples. So Stephanie came from a devout Jewish family. Craig came from a Jewish background also. And many of their friends were also from a Jewish background or had a really good familiarity about her and her family and their Jewish traditions. So I will get to what being a Jew had to do with any of this. Um, it is a pretty big factor especially in the planning of Stephanie's death. So in this tight-knit group of friends, they also believed this was an accident. Everybody thought this was an accident. Stephanie is taken to the hospital. All life-saving measures are taken to try to revive her, yet she still died. Most of her friends were already out the hospital by Craig's side when they got the final news that she was unrevivable. And that she did not make it. And everybody broke down and cried. Craig, her parents, her friends, her family. I mean, this is heartbreaking. But something that's really strange is Craig did not go in the room to say his goodbyes to Stephanie. And he said he did not want to see her like that. Uh, I don't get that. I know everyone grieves in their own way, but I just don't get that. Okay. So going back to being Jewish. So a Jewish custom is that the dead do not generally get autopsies, seeing it as a violation, I believe, and they do not do embalming. 
So the dead are also generally buried within 24 hours of death. Stephanie's mom really pushed for this, but being that Stephanie was only 29 and the doctors in the hospital couldn't immediately find a cause of death, they decided it was important to hold her body and rule out any suspicion or foul play, therefore refusing to release it. But Anne, Stephanie's mom, really actually accepted this and quit pushing for um, a release of her daughter's body. She just made plans around it. They pushed the funeral to a later date and just did their seven days of Jewish mourning. The medical examiner wasted no time. Like I said, Philadelphia is a really crime-ridden area, but this main line is not. And if I'm not mistaken, in the book I read, the investigator really only had two extremely mysterious deaths that he was working on. The first one had been ruled out as an actual accident, and so he was only focusing on this death in this really small crime-ridden area. Okay? So... The results were really interesting. When somebody dies, the blood drains from the surface of their body, and this makes marks more visible on their skin, especially injuries caused during death. Now, when Stephanie's blood had drained, it was obvious, 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 that she had in fact been strangled. So she was ruled out for any medical conditions. She was checked out, you know, stroke, heart attack, brain aneurysm you name it, drowning, etc. This was a homicide and they needed to talk to Craig, the husband. Going over a couple things the investigators remembered was Craig told 911 he needed to unlock the door first to allow responders to enter. Something they needed to expand upon to rule out if an intruder could have had access to the home. Obviously, if Craig said he locked up the house so much so that investigators and first responders could not enter, then they needed to look for signs of a break-in to rule out if this was a possible intruder. They also noted that Stephanie had on all her jewelry in the bathtub. Even her really cheap watch, which in the book said gave her a rash sometimes, that was kind of weird. They also noted that her time of death seemed to be off based off of her temperature and stomach contents, that she likely died closer to 9 to 3 hours before Craig called 911. With this little bit of information, they actually could have probably arrested Craig, but they decided to play it cool. Craig's wife's funeral was not for several days, and they knew he wasn't a flight risk. He'd have so much immediate attention, and the funeral, he would be very easy to follow. So they knew where he'd be at all times, and they would arrest him shortly after the funeral services. They just needed to get a statement for now. Craig agrees to come speak to the police and he brings with him an attorney friend, um, something Solomon. The police ask him the events of that night and they were this. They went to eat, I think, came home, got the baby girl to bed, Haley. Craig opened two beers, but Stephanie barely drank hers. Then she went to draw a bath and he went through his nightly routine of locking up the house, turned on his hockey game and grabbed the paper. When they asked if she took medication, he said that he had a prescription for sleeping pills Ambien and that he'd noticed he'd had like three left, but then the bottle was kind of empty and he thinks that he doesn't know if he maybe accidentally spilled them into the toilet or if Stephanie took some. So he basically did not know. In a nutshell, it sounds like he's suggesting, oh, I don't know. I do have Ambien there. Maybe she took some which is kind of a setup for a defense to me. 
Investigators had enough information to know that Stephanie was strangled and only her, Craig, and the baby were in that house. There was no sign of breaking and entering, which there should be if the house was locked up and it was an intruder. Now, what was Craig's motive, though? Mm. Let me tell you about Craig. (sighs) For one, everybody liked Craig. He was a guy's guy. He talked shop, sports, business, helped people with handiwork, and was always available. He also gossiped like a hen with the ladies, and he was basically everybody's best friend, all the men and the women in their group. He was also readily available to help everyone. Such great work hours owning his own business. People joked that he basically never had to go to work. His friends and family believed so much in his business that they were his biggest financial supporters. They all pitched in tens of thousands of dollars as investments in his company. Investments that they did sometimes see a small return on, but nothing like they were anticipating yet. They also believed in Craig's innocence and helped to fund his legal fees and help with their baby when everything first happened. One thing everyone agreed on was that no one had ever seen Craig blow his top, ever. He like never freaked out or got mad. And him and his wife never ever fought. But what investigators found out about Craig when they took a deeper look was much darker. For one, they could find no existence of the business that he had other than on some documents, just paperwork, hidden in his closet. There was no warehouse, there was no money trail, and there was no income. They did find the couple brought a $230,000 home two years prior, but were living off of a $30,000 a year salary. Craig had taken out two additional mortgages, which totaled $305,000. This does not include all the money he'd borrowed as fake investments and $100,000 in credit card debt. All in all, I think I think his debt totaled like $800,000. Don't worry though, because weeks prior, the couple took out life insurance policies. Stephanie's was a whopping $1.5 million with an additional $500,000 payout. Dude, that's $2 million. But here's the question. If Craig's getting all this money from his mortgage loans and business investments, why did he have so much debt and why would he want to kill Stephanie for the insurance money? What is he doing with all of this money? If the business isn't real, it's got to be going somewhere. Okay, so we're going to back it up a little bit. Craig and his close friends had a lot of old inside jokes. And sometimes they had a joke for Craig about Delilah's Den, a strip club. Now, Craig had let it slip up with his circle of friends that he had to take a client to an upscale strip club called Delilah's Den. And the group was rather shocked, but they got that it was like to seal a business deal. And this isn't that weird for certain types of businessmen, but they also found it, you know, was kind of funny. And it turned out that Craig did more than just a business deal at Delilah's. His business was Delilah's Den. Every time he said he was going out of town on a business trip or to have a business meeting, he was actually going to Delilah's Den and lavishing a stripper named Summer there with money and expensive gifts. He's said to have spent like $30,000 on her, and that's his whole wife's annual salary. 
all of this information was an extremely hard pill for friends and family to swallow. He's a liar and he's a con artist and he killed their best friend. In fact, it took a while and a lot more information than that to collect before the friends could admit that maybe Craig was guilty. Anytime a friend had a moment where they doubted Craig's innocence, they'd often be talked down by whoever they confided in, even their own spouses. And the group would together let it go and proclaim Craig's innocence and keep it moving. But investigators pointed out how weird it was for a woman um, to bathe with a watch on. And Craig had told them that she always wore her watch. Well, to solidify this story, he tried planting this seed with his friends. And one of them found it really suspicious when Craig kind of just blurts out, remember Stephanie, how she always wore her watch? Or remember how Stephanie always had a watch on? And it was really out of context to the conversation that they were having. So it stood out and was really suspicious to the friend. But when she brought the suspicion to the group, they all brushed it off as nothing until Craig was arrested. So Craig was arrested following Stephanie's funeral May 5th and the day he was set to begin his trial he actually opted to plead guilty as part of a deal and spare his daughter and Stephanie's family the trauma of a court trial. Some darker things about Craig emerged. This was not his first time affair Craig had gotten caught up and carried away in. Craig was a sleazeball from the beginning. Apparently in 1993, Craig testified for immunity in a legal prostitution ring. He was involved in and he testified that between 1989 and 1990, he'd paid a prostitute to come to his home that he shared with Stephanie while she was away, the apartment they had before they moved in with Stephanie's mom. And he had the stripper or he had the prostitute there, I think about like four or five times. Now it had not shown on his record because he had immunity. And he's so sneaky and conniving, he didn't ever tell anybody about it. So knowing everything we know about Craig, it's no surprise now that on the evening of April 30th, Craig drugged his wife with his sleeping pill prescription, undressed her, put her unconscious body in the bath, strangled her, and phoned 911 three hours later. He did this to get out of the financial mess he was in and further supply his lifestyle that he had been providing to impress and keep his stripper girlfriend Summer. Summer has never come forward to speak on her relationship with Craig, but it is my understanding that Craig supposedly meant nothing to her, and this was a really high-end strip club where women were gifted apartments, cars, expensive handbags, everything. I mean, Craig, Craig was probably a quarter in a bucket to this highly sought-after stripper. How pathetic. Sobbing. Craig pled guilty to first-degree murder, theft by deception, and um, deceptive business practices. He was immediately sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Until then, he had basically said that someone broke into their home in the Marion Township and strangled his wife, Stephanie, in the bathtub. And this all happened just a few days before their baby daughter's first birthday. So unfortunate that Craig stooped to these levels. This is why you really have to be careful who you're around. I mean, they were married for 14 years. They had friends that supported him financially, that paid for his legal defense. Uh, 
wolf in sheep clothing. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Podcast, and I will catch you next week. Bye. Thank you.